Welcome to the award-winning personal computer show. Today is September the 21st, 2022, the last day of summer. Tomorrow is the autumnal equinox. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Federal court rules that big tech has no freewheeling First Amendment right to censor. Decision upholds Texas law that limited the right of social media companies to squash opinions. This alleged outsourcing of censorship is illegal, stated Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt as he peels back the layers of the White House allegedly colluding with social media to execute censorship. A federal's appeals court upheld a Texas law on Friday that seeks to curb censorship by social media platforms. The ruling, a major victory, who charge companies like Twitter and Facebook are limiting free speech, is a step in a major legal battle that could end up at the Supreme Court. The lawsuit is challenging HB 20, a Texas bill signed into law by Governor Greg Abbott that regulates social media platforms with more than 50 million monthly users, which includes Google, Facebook, and Twitter, and says they cannot censor or limit users' speech based on viewpoint expression. In his opinion, federal judge Andrew S. Oldham of the Fifth Circuit said the platforms argue for a rather odd inversion of the First Amendment that buried somewhere in the person's enumerated rights to free speech lies a corporation's unenumerated right to muzzle speech. The judge says today we reject that idea that corporations have a freewheeling First Amendment right to censor what people say. Friday's ruling created what is known as a circuit split. Since the 11th Circuit struck down a similar social media law in Florida, a circuit split generally increases the likelihood of the Supreme Court taking up a case. On June the 30th of this year, A federal judge blocked a Florida law designed to penalize large social media companies that ban politicians over First Amendment concerns. U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle granted a preliminary injunction against Governor Ron DeSantis' big tech law after NetChoice and the Computer and Communications Industry Association, which represent multiple big tech companies, filed a lawsuit early in the month. The lawsuit argued the law violates the First Amendment's free speech clause, is vague in violation of the 14th Amendment, and stands in opposition to equal protection clauses. In addition to Texas, lawmakers in Arizona and North Dakota have also introduced bills that mandate greater transparency regarding content moderation and prevent social media platforms from canceling conservative speech. Backblaze reports on reliability of solid-state drives versus hard disk drives. The solid-state drives 
used as boot drives in its data center seem to be more reliable, but perhaps not over time. Cloud backup and storage provider Backblaze has found that flash solid-state drives are more reliable than hard disk drives, at least as far as the boot drives deployed in its data centers. These findings come from Backblaze's latest report detailing reliability statistics on the drives used in its infrastructure. One of the issues the company wanted to settle is whether solid-state drives really are more dependable than hard disk drives. But the data published in March appeared to show that the solid-state drives were following the same pattern of failure rate as the hard disk drives over time, albeit with a slightly lower annualized fail rate. The solid-state drives and hard disk drives here are all used as boot drives rather than the disks used to store data and Backblaze began a switch to solid-state drives in the fourth quarter of 2018, which means that the two sets of drives are set at different points in their respective life expectancy curves. To compensate for this, the company only compared solid-state drives that were on average one year old with hard disk drives that were on average one year old, and so on. With another year of data available, the failure rate of solid-state drives took a downward turn rather than continuing to follow the same failure rate as the hard disk drives. Backblaze in a statement said, At this point, we can reasonably claim that solid-state drives are more reliable than hard disk drives, at least when used as boot drives in our environment. This supports the anecdotal stories and educated guesses made by our readers over the past year or so. It is highly certain that the failure rate of solid-state drives will eventually start to rise again, but it is possible that at some point the solid-state drives Backblaze uses could hit the war, perhaps when they start to reach their media wear-out limits. Over the coming months, we'll take a look at the smart stats for our solid-state drives and see how they relate to drive failure. We also have some anecdotal information of our own that we'll try to confirm on how far past the media wear-out limits you can push a solid-state drive. The boot drives do more than just boot up Backblaze's storage servers, and as they also store log files and temporary files produced by each server. And so a boot drive will read, write, and delete files depending on the activity of the storage server itself. As of June 30th of this year, there were 2,558 solid-state drives in the storage servers and this compares to the 2,200 solid-state drives that were covered in the March report. Looking over the quarterly failure rates for quarter 1 and quarter 2 for this year, it can be seen from the respective tables that the same number of failures was recorded in each quarter, despite there being more drives included in quarter 2 than in quarter 1. This is reflected in the lower annualized failure rate for quarter 2 than for quarter 1. They also said that any drive model within this grouping of solid-state drives, Blackblaze would prefer to see it represented by at least 100 drives and account for at least 10,000 drive days, the number of days all the drives of a specific model were operational in a given quarter before considering the calculated annualized fail rate to be reasonable. None of the drives met this threshold yet. Backblaze also examined the entire lifetime data available for all the solid-state drives it had active in its data centers at the end of the second quarter of this year. 
it found that this lifetime annualized failure rate for all of the solid-state drives came out to 0.92%, a figure that is down from 1.04% for the whole of 2021, but exactly the same as the second quarter 2021 annualized fail rate of 0.92%. They warn here that Backblaze likes to see a confidence interval of 1% or less between the low and the high confidence interval values before the company's confident about the calculated annualized fail rate. They noted that in these figures there are three drives with a confidence interval of 1% or lower and picks out the Dell drive as the best. It is a server class drive in an M.2 form factor, but it might be out of that price range for many users as it currently sells from Dell for $468.65. In contrast, the other two drives are consumer-focused and ship in the traditional solid-state drive form factor, and both are from Seagate. As ever, Backblaze makes available the data collected and analyzed for this report on its hard drive test data page for others to examine. Anyone can download and use this data for free, provided they cite Backblaze as a source and do not sell this data to others. NASA announces third launch attempt date for Artemis 1. Some people would say three's a crowd, but others would insist that third time's the charm. The first time this allusion to the number three appeared in print was in Elizabeth Barrett Browning's letters addressed to R.H. Horn in 1839. In one letter, she says, the luck of the third adventure is proverbial. The implication that it's proverbial suggests that this is something people have said for a long time. Another appearance of the number three in line with luck appears in Alexander Hislop's The Proverbs of Scotland, 1862. Third time's lucky. Well, as you might notice, this is very similar to the phrase we use today, which is third time's the charm. NASA's Mega Moon rocket is now scheduled to make its third liftoff attempt on September the 27th. The Artemis I rocket is made up of six-person Orion capsule perched atop the 30-story space launch system, dubbed the Mega Moon rocket and was initially scheduled to embark on its maiden voyage to the moon and back on August the 29th. But technical difficulties foiled the rocket's first two attempts at liftoff. NASA scrubbed the rocket's first attempt because engineers were unable to cool one of the rocket's four core stage RS-25 engines down to a safe temperature in time for liftoff. The agency announced that it had fixed the problem, which it blamed on a faulty temperature sensor. Then, during the rocket's second attempt, an alarm sounded as the craft was being loaded with its supercooled liquid hydrogen fuel, alerting engineers to a gap in the seal of one of the rocket's engines. Engineers tried and failed to plug the leak three times. NASA said that the leak was at a quick disconnect where the SLS core stage met the fuel line from the rocket's mobile launch tower which the agency fixed by replacing two seals at the leak point. The U.S. Space Agency says the earliest launch opportunity will now be September the 27th, with a backup opportunity on October the 2nd. NASA engineers plan to demonstrate the leak is patched by conducting a test to plump propellant into the craft on September the 17th. 
The updated dates represent careful consideration of multiple logistic topics, including the additional value of having more time to prepare for the cryogenic demonstration test and, subsequently, more time to prepare for the launch. NASA officials wrote in a blog post announcing the new launch date. The dates also allows managers to ensure teams have enough rest and to replenish supplies of cryogenic propellants. Orion is planned to make two flybys of the moon, 62 miles, that's 100 kilometers, above the lunar surface, and zipping as far out as 40,000 miles, that's 64,000 kilometers, beyond the moon before returning to Earth 38 days after launch. NASA has stowed three mannequins aboard the capsule that be reused to test radiation and heat levels during the flight. A Snoopy soft toy is also along for the ride, floating around inside the capsule as a zero-gravity indicator. When Orion comes back, it is set to return hotter and faster than any space vehicle ever has, heating up to 5 degrees Fahrenheit as it enters Earth's atmosphere at 32 times the speed of sound. This will put the capsule heat shield to the test, which alongside the craft's parachute will use air friction to slow Orion down to just 20 miles per hour, after which it should plop down safely in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Baja, California, Mexico, ready for retrieval. The flight will be followed by Artemis II and Artemis III in 2024 and 2025-2026, respectively. Artemis II will make the same journey as Artemis I, but with a four-person human crew, and Artemis III will send the first woman and first person of color to land on the moon's South Pole. Speaking to BBC Radio 4, before the second launch attempt, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said that the test mission will be a spur for technological innovation and a crucial next step in humanity's exploration of the cosmos. This time, we're going not just to touch down on the moon and leave after a few hours or a few days. We're going back to learn, to live, to work, to explore, to determine, is there water? Therefore, on the moon's south pole, that means we will have rocket fuel, we'll have a gas station up there, Nelson said. This time, we're going to learn how to live in that hostile environment for long periods of time, all with the purpose that we're going to Mars. Google cancels half the R&D projects in Area 120. Google CEO Sundar Pichai, speaking at the Code Conference, suggested the tech company needed to become 20% more efficient, a comment some in the industry took to mean headcount reductions could soon be on the table now. It seems that the prediction may be coming true. Google confirmed the company's slashing projects at its in-house R&D division known as Area 120. The company informed staff of a reduction in force that will see the incubator halved in size and half the teams working on new product innovations heard their projects were being canceled. Previously, there were 14 projects housed in Area 120, and this has been cut down to just seven. Employees whose project will not continue were told they'll need to find a new job within Google by the end of January 2023, or they'll be terminated. 
It's not clear that everyone will be able to do so. The division aims to sharpen its focus to only AI-first projects, as opposed to its earlier mandate to fuel product incubation across all of Google. Google confirmed in a following statement, Area 120 is an in-house incubator for experimental new products. The group regularly starts and stops projects with an eye toward pursuing the most promising opportunities. A Google spokesperson said, We recently shared that Area 120 will be shifting its focus to projects that build on Google's deep investment in AI and have the potential to solve important user problems. As a result, Area 120 is winding down several projects to make way for new work. Impacted team members will receive dedicated support as they explore new projects and opportunities at Google. Over the years, the division has launched a number of successful products, including the HTML5 gaming platform, GameSnacks, now integrated with Google Chrome, an Airtable rival called Tables, which exited to Google Cloud, an AI-powered conversational ads platform, AdLingo, which also exited to Cloud, video platform Tangy, and ShopLoop, which exited to Google Search and Shopping, respectively. The web-based travel app, Touring Bird, which exited to Commerce, and a technical interview platform by Byteboard, a rear external spin-out. One of the projects now being cut with the changes is Quayar, a service offering web storefronts for digital creators, launched late last year. Similar to Link in Bio, Solutions available today, like Linktree or Bacon's Quayar, additionally integrated with Google Search and Google Shopping. It could also be linked with YouTube Merch Shelf to promote the creator's products and services. The other six projects being canceled weren't launched, but included a financial accounting project for Google Sheets, another shop-related product, analytic for artificial reality and visual reality, and unfortunately three climate-related projects. These latter projects had focused on EV car charging maps with routing, carbon accounting for IT, and carbon measurement of forests. The changes follow last year's reorg of the Area 120 team, which saw the group move into a new Google Lab division. The incubator was then grouped alongside other forward-looking efforts at Google, like its virtual and augmented reality and developments and its cutting-edge holographic video conferencing project known as Project Starline. Google Labs and Starline are not impacted for the time being. Pichai announced in July that Google would slow its hiring and sharpen its focus. But the company has said larger layoffs were not planned. It would still hire in engineering, technical, and other critical roles. However, as part of its renewed emphasis on productivity, the company acknowledges it may need to restructure teams, deprecate products, or even at times eliminate roles. As for the Area 120 team members whose projects have now been discontinued, Google's recruiters will work to help them find new roles, though placement is not a given in a situation like these. Google has over 174,000 employees. 
Area 120 had over 170 employees at the beginning of the year, but is now down under 100. Document Foundation starts charging $10 for free LibreOffice. LibreOffice is a free and powerful office suite and a successor to OpenOffice.org, commonly known as OpenOffice. Its clean interface and feature-rich tools help you unleash your creativity and enhance your productivity. It is a very viable alternative to Microsoft Office. LibreOffice is free and open-source software. However, it doesn't mean software is free, of course. It means that source code of the software is open for all and anyone is free to use, study, and modify the code. LibreOffice is a fork of OpenOffice and is offered under the free, open-source Mozilla Public License version 2.0. The Document Foundation, the organization that tends the OpenOffice productivity suite, LibreOffice, has decided to start charging for one version of the software. LibreOffice is a fork of OpenOffice and is offered under the free open-source license by Mozilla 2.0. In a recent release statement from Document Foundation reveals the organization will begin charging $10 for the software, but only when sold via Apple's Mac App Store. That sum has been styled a convenience fee, which will be invested to support development of the LibreOffice project. The foundation suggests paying up in the Mac Apple Store is ideal for end users who want to get all their desktop software from Apple's proprietary sales channel. Free downloads of LibreOffice for Mac OS from the foundation site will remain available and arguably be superior to the App Store offering because that version will include Java. The foundation argued that Apple does not permit dependencies in its store, so it cannot include Java in the $10 offering. The version now sold in the App Store supersedes a previous offering provided by Open Source Support Collabora, which charged $10 for a vanilla version of the suite and threw in three years of support. The foundation's marketing officer thanked Collabora for its past efforts and explained the change as a new marketing strategy. The Document Foundation is focused on the release of the community version, while ecosystem companies are focused on a value-added long-term supported versions targeted at enterprises. The distinction has the objective of educating organizations to support free and open-source software. By choosing the LibreOffice version, which has been optimized for deployments in production and is backed by professional services and not the community version, generously supported by volunteers. The objective is to fulfill the needs of individual and enterprise users in a better way. Educating enterprises about free, open software support is not a trivial task. It's a slightly odd statement given the the massive adoption of Linux and open source databases in the enterprise and the enormous market share of the open source Chromium browser engine in the Chrome and Edge browsers. Mozilla's open source 
Firefox can also be found in many businesses. The desktop productivity tools market, however, remains utterly dominated by proprietary offerings such as Microsoft Office Suite and associated cloud services, with Google's workspaces nibbling around the edges and the occasional new market entrant trying to hand at the market as web graphics darling Canva announced a couple of weeks back. Open Office celebrates download milestone in reach for this article. In a recent post from the Apache Foundation celebrating Open Office passing 333 million downloads. Of those, 55 million downloads were made within the United States, followed by 44 million from France and another 34 million from Germany. Just 4.75 million were for the Linux version of the suite, well behind the 298 million Windows download. LibreOffice is a very decent suite, but it lacks the cloud tie-ins offered by Microsoft and Google. That omission is by design. The Document Foundation has developed a browser-based version of the suite, but decided not to advance it to become a full competitor to Office or Workspaces. Doing so would require selection and integration of other technologies needed for deployment, such as file sharing, authentication, load balancing, and so on, a significant growth of scope and not in line with the original mission of the project, stated the Foundation's page describing its browser-based efforts. But the Foundation is open to others creating such a service. The task is therefore left to larger deployers, ISPs and providers of open-source cloud solutions, and several options are already available on the market. TDF would welcome provisions of a public LibreOffice online offering by another charity. So, a quick recap. LibreOffice is a free and powerful office suite, except for end users who want to get all their desktop software from Apple's proprietary sales channel. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we start talking about IT and the workplace, or sometimes it's just the workplace and how IT factors in or relates in. And this is a situation where I'm, I'm, I'm continuing from last week. This is something we're going we're gonna to touch on this for a couple more weeks. But I wanted to talk about this concept of quiet quitting. It's malicious compliance, it's work to rule, or whatever it is. It's simply a lot of how people are shifting what they see and do in the workplace to something that has a better work-life balance, that has a little bit more of a reward to oneself rather than the company. And this is this is something that... Uh, I touched on a lot last week. It's it, it, there's a lot of balance that we have to factor in here. So we've we've got to explain. Actually, I'm going to explain here how IT works into this. IT already is frequently perceived by a number of people as a lack of value to the company. It's only when things are falling apart that you've got to get this up and running. The company is going to fail. But if everything's running fine, 
Everybody looks around and goes, what do we need IT for? They're just a cost center. Yes, I've had multiple employers tell me, you just cost the company money. There's no real reason why we need IT around here. Okay, great. I'll go turn off the servers for an hour. Let's see how well you do. Let's go back. Let's drag out the IBM Selectrix. Did I ever do that? No, actually, I didn't. But, okay, so IT already has this sense of feeling of a lack of value to the overall success of the company. They also have a high workload. I will tell you, in IT, we frequently see how much we are working after hours, both to fix computers, to keep the computers up and running. There's a lot of off-hours work that we have to do in technology. And we don't see a lot of the workers around us, the non-IT workers, pulling that same kind of weight. But we also have this realization of the high rewards that we bring to the company. Again, we know that you're not going to go back to the IBM Selectric. You, there's so much time savings, so much that we do in IT for the company that we realize, but we don't always get rewarded for this. We get very low returns on our own investment. Now, that's IT. Now, let, let, me, let me bring this forward to everybody and low returns on investment to people who are driving the company forward from the company's standpoint. Okay, clarification. Before I even go any further, look, I'm not a quiet quitter. I'm not going to go into any details about what I bring to the company I work for, the values, the rewards, the return on investment that I myself am seeing. But this is this is a problem that occurs in many areas throughout companies. So for many People are out there, they see other workers that they're just skating by. They're not pulling their own weight. Or maybe they're pulling their own weight. They're just, they're comfortable and they're not climbing anymore. So the other employees go, okay, why should I do more? Okay, so if Johnny over here, he's working from home all the time, why am I going into the office? And we're seeing that as a reluctance to go into the office. Uh, you know, they're, they're seeing a lot of this and they're going, oh, why should I go that extra step? And this leads to an overall reduction across the company in productivity, in output, uh, and each of these results in less success for the company than was originally forecast. Now, there is a problem here in that that's a forecast. We recently saw quarterly reports from Snapchat, and because they only had year-over-year -year growth in of 8%, let, let, me, let, me, let me state this, 8% increase in profits. Everybody's bailing on them. Most companies would love to see an 8% increase on any one of many figures, but this is a lot of different figures. Most people would love to see an 8% raise. But now let's real quick touch on from the company perspective and, and all of this. Your coworker isn't going to get replaced. Why? Well, because the cost to replace workers is high. Even with quiet quitting, driving down some work output, it's still so much more expensive to find a new worker than retain an old one. How much? 
well, it, it's sometimes factored as high as twice your annual salary. You know, the HR has to go through and recruit. Your boss has to go through a number of resumes. They have to go through a number of interviews. HR goes through various paperwork. You have all of the onboarding activities, the getting somebody up to speed, all of this. And the company will wind up paying more frequently for your replacement worker, especially as inflation has moved expectations. Overall, expectations have shifted to working from home. They uh, they also include additional benefits, and unemployment right now is at 4%, roughly. That 4% is a magic number where they figure most unemployed people are simply either migrating, temporarily just for a short time unemployed, or they just aren't going to work at our company. So, you know, this is even harder on the employer. It's not an employer's market until about 6 or 7%. And the IT side, I will tell you, the IT side's much lower. Unemployment is, yeah, amazing right now for, for IT workers. Anyways, in the next uh, couple of weeks, we'll talk about things from the employer's perspective What are the problems and what are the solutions? But also some valuable insight for you, too, as an employee. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Performance boost for Chromebooks, Chrome browsers on the way. A new setting called Performance will add performance boost for Chromebooks and the Chrome browser on all supported platforms. The performance settings will include a similar feature recently added to Chromebooks and also a new function to boost overall Chrome performance. Two performance boosts for Chromebooks and the Chrome browser. The new performance option that will eventually appear in Chrome settings in Google's Chromium code log. The first is battery saver feature and the second is called High Efficiency Saver. The two do different things, but combined can boost the performance and battery life of Chrome and Chrome OS devices. What is the battery saver, and what will it do? The battery saver code says this function conserves battery power by limiting background activity and visual effects, such as smooth scrolling and video frame rates. In this current state, It appears users can enable the feature and also set a battery threshold level. Presumably, when your battery charge is below that level, battery saver mode will kick in to extend the life of your Chromebook or your computer running Chrome. Of course, in the latter case, other applications and operating system resources will still impact battery life. This is related to, but different from, the new adaptive battery feature added to Chromebooks on Chrome OS 105. And how does High Efficiency Mode work? The High Efficiency Mode code says the feature reclaims memory from tabs you aren't actively using. This frees up your computer's resources for other tasks and keeps Chromium speedy. Inactive tabs appear empty and automatically reload when you click them. And how will this work? Currently in three ways. Thresholds are set for the number of open tabs, how many janks when software is sluggish to respond, and how much memory is being used by the system. When one or more of these thresholds are crossed, Chrome OS or the Chrome browser 
or start freeing up system memory and other resources to speed things up. The obvious downside is that some open tabs may reload when you make them active again. Note, while this feature is for both Chrome and Chrome OS, it will appear in the Chrome browser on Chromebooks, so you won't see it in the settings for Chrome OS. That's because Google has been working to decouple the browser from Chrome OS and LaCrosse. The Floppy Diskette Market Travis Clark, Tom Persky, founder of FloppyDisk.com, sells and recycles the archaic storage medium. After decades of success as an industrial duplicator, he is now selling blank floppy diskettes. He is the founder of FloppyDisk.com, a U.S.-based company dedicated to the selling and recycling of floppy diskettes. Other services include disk transfers, a recycling program, and selling used and or broken floppy diskettes to artists around the world. All of this makes FloppyDisk.com a key player in the small yet profitable contemporary floppy scene. It appears no one is manufacturing them anymore, but Persky saw it coming and has considerable dead stock at hand. The last man selling floppy disk says, Airlines continue to make orders for the ancient storage medium. He says in a new book that the airline industry is one of his biggest customers. While they are a relic of another time, at least one industry is still interested in the storage medium, according to the person who claims to be the last man standing in the floppy disk business. Tom Persky said that the airline industry is one of his biggest customers in the new book, Floppy Disk Fever, The Curious Afterlives of a Flexible Medium, by Nick Hilkman and Thomas Walkscar. My biggest customers and the place where most of the money comes from are the industrial users, Persky said. These are the people who use floppy diskettes as a way to get information in and out of a machine. Imagine it's 1990 and you're building a big industrial machine of one kind or another. You design it to last 50 years and you want to use the best technology available. Take the airline industry, for example. Probably half of the air fleet in the world today is more than 20 years old and still uses floppy diskettes in some of the avionics. That's a huge consumer. He also said the medical industry still use floppy diskettes. And then there's hobbyists who wants to buy them 10, 20, or maybe 50 floppy diskettes at a time. Floppy diskettes made news recently when Japan's digital minister, Taro Kano, declared a war on the the medium, tweeting earlier this month that Japan's digital agency would change regulations requiring businesses to use floppy diskettes and CDs instead of shifting to online services. The failure rate of the remaining inventory is high, but most people buy the medium for art projects, not really for building applications. Every once in a while, he'll get a game company that wants to re-release an old game. But he said that most of it is for the art or for promotions. One of the things that he has seen a lot is the use of floppy diskettes as badges at conferences. He sold a lot of diskettes for that, especially the recycled diskettes that couldn't be reformatted. 
there's a fallout of about 30%. So he has a large amount of diskettes that are considered to be unusable, but they all still have market value. Harvard engineers invent a solid-state battery that never dies. Solid-state batteries are a promising technology, although technical problems must be solved before they can be manufactured at an industrial scale. A new type of solid-state battery pioneered by startup Adden, that's A-D-D-E-N, energy points to a leap in performance and reliability. The startup uses an exclusive technology license from Harvard's Office of Technology Development to develop solid-state battery systems for use in future electric vehicles. Based on lithium metal technology, the battery can achieve charge rates as fast as three minutes with over 10,000 cycles in a lifetime. The coin cell prototypes were developed by Adin Energy. They want to scale the battery up to a palm-sized pouch cell and further to a full-scale EV battery. In a statement by the scientific advisor to Adin Energy, we set out to commercialize this technology because we do see our technology as unique compared to other solid-state batteries. We have achieved in the lab 5,000 to 10,000 charge cycles in a battery's lifetime compared with today's 2,000 to 3,000 charging cycles for even the best in class now. And we don't see any fundamental limit to scaling up our battery technology. That could be a game changer. The battery uses a new technology that prevents dendrite formation in the lithium metal anodes. The innovative solid-state electrolyte is essential to this technology, allowing it to achieve an ultra-high current density with no lithium dendrite penetration. The electrolyte features a multi-layer design, which has a structure of a less stable electrolyte sandwiched between more stable solid electrolytes. The dendrite growth happens inside the less stable electrolyte layer, but any cracks formed are quickly filled by dynamically generated decompositions that are also well constrained. According to a study published in Nature more than a year ago, the cycling performance lithium metal anode paired with other elements are very stable. The capacity retention after 20,000 cycles is above 82% at a 20 centigrade rate. The specific power is also impressive at 110.6 kilowatts per kilogram. The results are well above lithium-ion battery projects, and Adin Energy is confident it can have commercial samples in the next three to five years. Well, like all scientific projects, the big question is, can it be scaled for the masses at a reasonable price? Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, uh, what was it? Uh, I think it was last week we were talking about, you, you had said something kind of cryptic. You said, you know, you'd been diving into, or you indicated you were diving into a lot of USB items. And it, it was something about the, uh, the, yeah, that was last week because it was the security bits. And you were saying something about how you'd be surprised at just the mess that's in there or what you would see if you could get in there. Oh, yeah. true, true. But, uh, you know, 
And I, I think one of the things we didn't mention that was part of it was the whole issue of USB, okay. which everybody yeah. thinks is one thing, right? USB, well, you got USB. Yeah, I got USB. <laughs> <laughs> got a USB cable. Yeah, I got a USB cable. We got sure. 11 different kinds. What kind do you want? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't have that. Line. Only 11? <laughs> yeah. Amateurs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I happen to do a little plunge, as I want to do, my little homework sessions, mm -hmm. trying to think, okay, if I'm building something now that wants USB in it, I don't care if it's just for charging or it's communication, whatever it is. Yeah. I want to future proof it. I don't want it to come out and already be a generation behind everybody else. Right. So, sure. Yeah. So what's now or next in USB? And that's a question that automatically divides itself in two. Okay. And because USB these days is as much a charging standard as anything else. Yes, yes. And because USB is also getting to be an ever wider band communications route. Yes, yes. So here are some things I found. Uh, USB 4. Okay. USB 4 is, uh, now don't confuse that for the, the connector. It's a USB-C connector. Okay, and, good. And it's much, much higher bandwidth. So they're upgrading the uh, probably the cables and the twists and stuff like that on the inside of the cables and uh, keeping the same connector. All of that, but even more, the electronics at the other end of the connector Okay, have to get improved. And that also means, people, you, you don't know this because you haven't had to go through certification. It means it's going to be a more meticulous design to pass FCC clearance. Mm, okay. You can't radiate, and you're way up in the RF band on the signal that's on the wire. Sure, yeah. So uh, these are things to watch. Can USB 4 replace HDMI? Certainly can work alongside it in many cases. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. what is HDMI today? 1.4234. I've lost track of HDMI. And for that matter, if you buy a new TV set or you buy a new something that has an HDMI output, how are you going to connect them? How are you going to make sure that cable's right? And how long is too long for the bandwidth you're trying to communicate? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they, you know, that's way consumery. So they don't put the big sticker on that says, do not use with products from ancienttech.com. You know, they just, <laughs> they, they just don't bother telling is, is you that. This, is this kind of uh, turning into another area where they're doing a planned obsolescence, you think, or... Uh, the HDMI guys don't think so, but <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us, yeah. <laughs> okay, got it, my. got it. Yeah, uh, but you know, why haven't they gotten rid of the lightning connector? <laughs> uh, the other part, the, the, for charging, uh, if you're dealing with power over USB, that means the PD or power delivery standard, mm. and there's a lot of USB charging that still doesn't support PD. Uh, USB, back to signal for a second, high bandwidth, you're going to need at least USB 3.2 to start supporting it in any meaningful way. But USB 4 is already heading for production for many products. So okay, all right. Be, be wary. And when you get to buy all of those old USB 3.1 cables... Make sure they're deeply discounted. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. By the way, 
Do you know what you get if you stick USB into the early middle of B-O-Y? You get a busboy. And now it's politically incorrect and not just lame engineering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that, that was an odd segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always thought with USB in the middle and big type, something should be called busboy. But right. then again, you know, <laughs> the other the other standard USB joke, you want to you want to tell it? Which one is this? What comes after USA? Oh, no. USB. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of coming up, what what's after this? Any idea on what, what we're going to see next after we get to USB 4? I mean, I'm obviously USB 5, but... Oh, you never know. They, yeah. they may do the Microsoft thing and turn it into USB me. Sure. Yes. <laughs> like Windows me. Oh man. Uh, USB surface. Uh, yeah. 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 That's right. USB yeah. telepathy. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, you know, there are some questions about why you need the bandwidth. Mm, yeah. Uh, unless there are 18 people in your house, all doing 3D, 8K. <laughs> Teams resume sessions. All yeah, day. yeah. It starts getting weird at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, uh, we we are getting into that area. I remember years ago where it was important to chase after the latest level of processor, the latest speed on the hard drives and network and Wi-Fi memory. and, and memory. memory, but and graphics. Yeah, it, it's it's less so now. We'll yes. find something, I'm sure, to make up for it. Well, we we get inside boxes a lot less than we used to. Yeah, yeah. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. I'll be back with more in just a moment. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation on Chromebooks, an alternative, Thursday, September the 22nd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Meeting ID is pcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group meets Thursday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And the presentation will be the James Webb Telescope. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, October the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting ID is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, October the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West, Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347 278 
7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, nyacc.org for meeting ID. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 15th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is limac.org. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.